Hey, everybody. We're in Daniel chapter 4, so if you have a Bible, you can go there. I, uh, I admit that I did only have a milkshake for dinner, but I will also confess that I texted a picture of that milkshake to my family, and they were all jealous, so I don't feel too bad about it. They were all envious of my dinner choices, so there you go. And it was good, and, you know, I might be sick later, but whatever. Daniel chapter 4 is interesting. Uh, most commentators will say that they think that Daniel chapter 4 takes place some 20 to 30 years after uh, the events that we read yesterday. So in Daniel chapter 3, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, some time has passed by the time we get to Daniel chapter 4, and they're not sure about the exact length of that time. But the other thing that makes Daniel 4 really interesting uh, from a narrative point of view is that it's written in the first person, and it's written by Nebuchadnezzar. So the, the voice changes when we get to Daniel chapter 4. We've been hearing from kind of a third-person narrator, and now we're hearing from a first-person narrator. And we'll see right at the gate, this is Nebuchadnezzar saying, it seemed good to me to tell you what happened. And that's interesting, because what happens to Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter, it's not great, right? It's not, it's not like a, this isn't the story you want to brag about necessarily. Um, but let's just begin here a little bit, and then we'll dig in. Remember, the, our goal this week is to look at these narrative portions to be instructed and inspired towards what it looks like to be an ambassador in a foreign place, right? I talked on Sunday about the fact that God doesn't have a, a land covenant with the people of Christ, right? Christians, we don't, have a, we don't have a piece of property that He's willed to us. We are people of the kingdom of God, which is both now and not yet. But it's not about a specific place on earth. Uh, it's about every place on earth that, that is under the rule of the kingdom of God as it's sort of breaking through. But what's interesting here as we look at it is that while we're not in exile necessarily, we are certainly in a, in a world all the time, no matter where you're from or where you live or where you grew up or whatever, we're always in a world that doesn't necessarily appreciate our beliefs or our faith or what we think or whatever. So, so we're living as ambassadors. An ambassador is a messenger appointed by a king to carry the king's message to the king's audience. And no matter who you are or where you find yourself, ambassadorship's the name of the game. So this while these guys are in exile, their influence is really what I want us to look at. The influence that they have in a place that really couldn't care less about what they believe. So, Daniel chapter 4, here's how it begins. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. So he's, he's literally writing to you, right? To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. That also is an interesting thing for Nebuchadnezzar to say, because as I've already said, some of what's about to happen to Nebuchadnezzar is not particularly nice, right? It's not particularly comfortable or good. It's kind of embarrassing and shameful. But he says, and the way he remembers it as he's writing, is of the good things that God has done for him, right? The signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. I mentioned a couple nights ago that when Nebuchadnezzar has his first dream, he's troubled by it, but here he's terrified by it, right? The sentiment here is uh, different than the first dream. The second dream he finds terrifying. He says, as I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me the interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, 
Because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to the heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from, uh, from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Well, this is a very interesting dream, and it's very interesting that he is as... Uh, terrified by it as he is, because uh, even in his recounting of the dream, you'll notice that the, that the tense changes. So at one point, it's talking about a tree, beautiful tree, vast tree, all the animals come and find shelter and shade under it, all the peoples of the earth are fed out of the tree, it's beautiful and lovely, and its branches extend, you know, to the ends of the earth, and, and you're like, okay, it's a dream about a tree that gives shade to all the animals and food to all the peoples, it's a pretty great tree. But then a watcher or an angelic person in this dream, we don't know the exact nature of that, but, but the, the, uh, the implication is of an, of an angel, comes and uh, basically chops the tree down to a stump and caps it, strips the branches, strips the leaves, strips the fruit, takes it down to a stump and caps it there. And, and then the, the tense changes. So it isn't just talking about a tree, right, as we were reading it even. Um, it will say in verse 16, well, actually before that in 15, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's. So even in the dream that he's having, while it seems like it's about a tree, the reason why Nebuchadnezzar is terrified is that he knows, even without knowing the full interpretation, he knows this is a dream about him, right? He understands that he's the tree. He, at this point, for what it's worth, envisions himself as the one who provides shade for all the animals, and as the one who is beautiful and grand and glorious, he is worthy of praise. He is the one that all the people of the earth come to for food, right? Nebuchadnezzar is the center of the universe, in Nebuchadnezzar's own opinion, right? Is that me? Am I doing that? Maybe it's the beard, right? I'll push it out a little. How about that? How, no, now I, I just busted it. Sorry, hold on a second. I'll fix that. Or I won't. We'll see what happens. Man, I might have really wrecked this. Okay, let's see. No, no, no. I think it's just unsnapped. Sorry. Thank you. If I broke this, there'll be no more milkshakes for me. You want to take a look at it for me really quick? I don't know that I need it. Can you guys in the back hear me? Okay. Are we recording? Okay, I'll use, I can use this. And then, Josh, forgive me for this and just send the bill to Jeff Lilly at... Hey, where's the other piece? Where's the, the slide back? Fix it, and then I don't have to use the handheld. 
What happened here? To gesticulate powerfully. What do you think? Let's just use the handheld. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. I can take this. How much COVID do you have, Chris? A lot. Just kidding. Getting there. All right. Now try that. Thank you very much. I will keep the handheld. I will redo this. Forgive me. Uh, I turned it on the wrong side now. There we are. For those of you who are listening to the recording, there we go. What do you think? Out of the beard? It's my own fault for not shaving, right? Why didn't I do that? Why didn't I shave? What was I thinking? I know. I'm trying to get ready for Christmas, y'all. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for that. Uh, actually, it's funny. This has nothing to do with Daniel, but I've had several people say to me like, oh, you remind me of Santa. And when they say that to me, I'm like, that doesn't hurt my beard's feelings. It hurts my stomach's feelings, right? <laughs> Whatever. It's fine. Where were we? I, I was, uh, the point I was trying to illustrate is that even though he doesn't know the interpretation of the dream specifically, he's terrified of the dream because he knows it's about him. The reason why that's important and the reason why it's even worth noting is that his willingness, and this is now after the fact, but his willingness to come back and write this story for our good and the glory of God is meaningful, right? It's meaningful you to think about the fact that here's a guy who has a terrible proclamation come, right? He has this dream that's talking about the decimation of his kingdom for a period of time and the humbling of him from from his position of arrogance and pride, right? And, And yet, when it's all done, he's willing to tell the story for the glory of God and the good of others. That tells you something about the discipline of God. We know that what will be unveiled, and maybe you've read this before, if not, we'll get there in a second, but what's going to be unveiled is that there is only one from whom all the creatures of the earth derive their food and their shade, and that's the God of heaven, right? It says in Psalm chapter 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all, right? His kingdom is the ultimate kingdom. If you read the prophetic and, and uh, sort of apop- apocalyptic sections of Daniel at the end, I mentioned this on the first night, the, the overarching essence of the end of the book of Daniel is no earthly kingdom shall stand, right? The kingdom of God rules over all. So the fact that Nebuchadnezzar has misunderstood that and he envisions himself as the source of all shade and nutrition and, and provision, this is God coming along and humbling him and reminding him that there is a tree and it ain't him, Right? It is worth noting at the same time, as he's sort of conveying the story, that he learns the lesson, right? He's able to tell the story because he learns the lesson along the way. And that speaks to us of the nature of God's correction, right? That our God is not a God who likes to throw thunderbolts for the sake of thunderbolts. And he's not a God who loves to smite people for the sake of smiting people. That when God sends correction, the scripture tells us that when he sends correction, it's for the sake of restoration, right? It's for the sake of redemption. You can look at a passage like Hebrews chapter 12, which I love, in verse 5, which says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons, right? Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews is telling us that one of the tests for the leg- legitimacy of your adoption as daughters or sons of God is the, dis- the presence of discipline, right? If God is not disciplining you, if he's not correcting you, the way Jesus talks about this is in John 15 is the idea of a vine dresser who prunes the branches that they will produce more fruit. If you're not experiencing pruning of any kind, then according to Hebrews 12, you have to go back and look at the legitimacy of your adoption, right? You have to go back and look at your redemption because every one of us who've been made sons and daughters of God experienced the discipline of God because of the love of God, right? It's, it's not just God trying to correct or trying to smite. It is God trying to corral in some ways to transform us to the image of his son. None of us like discipline, right? I remember, uh, and I've told this story before, but I remember when my son Jack was really little, we were in Nevada visiting family, and uh, I was listening to something on the radio or a CD. Or I'm, I'm a kind of an avid music fan, so I listen to lots of music, lots of different kinds of music. And some of the music I listen to is kind of noisy, and there's maybe a little more yelling than singing. You know what I'm talking about? So I was listening to some of that uh, one day. I don't listen to a lot of it, but I was listening to that, and my wife goes, can you please turn this noise down? It's so awful. This music's awful. And I was like, this music's not awful. You're just old. And I turned the music up instead, and uh, she didn't like that. But uh, I'm funny. I'm hilarious. I'm a hilarious guy to be married to. My wife, uh, we go to the ATM, and my wife gets out of the car, and she goes into the bank. And my little son, who's like, I don't know, three, sitting in a car seat in the back, he goes, hey, Dad. And I turn the music down. I look at him in the rearview mirror. He goes, Daddy, that wasn't very nice. (laughs) And I was like, what? And he goes, Mommy asked you to turn the music down, and instead you turned it up, and that's not very nice. And I was like... I was just kidding with mommy. Like, that's what mommies and daddies do. We like to joke. We like to tease. I'm just funny, you know, whatever. And uh, my little boy, he goes, Daddy, you tell us it's not nice to tease the people that we love. And so I turned around and I punched him uh, in the, just in the mouth. No, I didn't, I didn't hit him. But I kind of wanted to hit him, right? Like, I, I wanted to be like, hey, you're a three-year-old. You don't know what you're talking about. Like, you have no idea the depths of my wit, right? I'm very clever, and you can't appreciate it, and mom does, or whatever. I wanted to justify my actions, But what I realized in the moment was that despite my defensiveness, he was right. And he was repeating back to me things I'd said. And so I took that correction. I changed the music. My wife gets back in the car. I'm like, I'm really sorry about that thing a minute ago. And she's like, are you okay? Because I don't apologize a lot. And so anyway, it worked out. It was fine. The next day, uh, the next day was Thanksgiving. That's why we're in Nevada. And uh, so we're sitting at the family Thanksgiving table in my in-law's house. You know, big table, passing the plates around, serving up the food. And, uh, you know, if my plate comes around to my mother-in-law, and in front of her, what she's serving up for everybody is what she calls her, uh, her famous broccoli casserole. And I'll just tell you, it's an abomination. Like, it's a terrible, terrible uh, culinary item. It's, I don't know what's in it. I know there's broccoli in there. In addition to that, maybe old socks or something? I have no idea. It's the grossest. It smells gross. I, it's this disgusting. So my plate comes around to my mother-in-law, and she goes... Uh, Darren, would you like some of my famous broccoli casserole? And I was like, no, ma'am, I wouldn't. It smells like a dead body. And just like that, my two-year-old, three-year-old son in a, in a high chair, he goes, Dad, remember what we talked about in the car? <laughs> and of course, then everybody turns and looks, and they're like, what did you talk about in the car? And I was like, well, Jack just told me yesterday I should be nicer. You know, It's kind of humiliating to be corrected by my child. But in both cases, he was right, right? None of us like that feeling of correction. So it's, it's telling that in the process of being disciplined by God, that Nebuchadnezzar has the ability 
after the fact to come back and said, it seemed necessary to me to tell all the peoples of the earth what the God in heaven has done for me. And what he's talking about is discipline. We might be able to learn from that, even if we didn't know the rest of the story, right? We might be able to learn from his posture with regard to the discipline of God either way. But, but let's keep reading. So he calls Daniel in and he says, hey, can you tell me what this is all about? What I want to look at for, for our focus tonight is actually Daniel's response because I think it's, once again, very instructive in our interactions with other people. We, we live in a world where people are broken and there are going to be times, if you're interacting with people who don't know Jesus or people who do know Jesus, there are going to be times where they ask for your input or they ask for your feedback or they ask for, for you know, your opinion on what's going on in their life. And sometimes it can be tricky to figure out how to navigate that response, right? So I just want to look at Daniel's response to this king. And don't forget, as we're looking at this, that Nebuchadnezzar is the king who laid waste to his hometown. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who commanded for the holy things in the temple of God to be taken and put into the temple of their pagan gods. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who has enslaved him. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who dragged him away from his family. Nebuchadnezzar is the source of most of Daniel's pain. If Daniel has nightmares, if he lays away at night, night missing his homeland and his family, Nebuchadnezzar's at the heart of that. Now we could go one step deeper and remember that God gave Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. But Nebuchadnezzar is, for all intents and purposes, not necessarily someone that you and I would look from a distance and go, well, they were, they were buddies, right? Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, they were tight. I don't think so. But look at what happens here in 19, 18, excuse me. Back to uh, Daniel chapter 4. No, I do think it's 19. I was in a different place. 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Before we go any further, I just want to point out that Daniel hears the dream, he understands the interpretation, and his first response is compassion. It's weird. I mean, it might feel weird to you. It certainly feels weird to me at first glance. It would be easy for Daniel to go, yeah, here we go. I can't wait to tell you the interpretation of this dream. You think you're a beautiful tree? You think all the animals take their shade under you? You think you're feeding all the peoples of the earth? Well, you got another thing coming. You took me from my homeland. Guess what? The angel of the Lord is going to come and strip you of all your power. He's going to send you out in the field like a wild animal for seven seasons. And everybody's going to know that you got no power, but God has it all. Ha, 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 right? It would have been easy for him to gloat. It would have been easy for him to condemn. It would have been easy for him to shame. It would have been easy for him to, you know, do the, the powerful, you know, Old Testament prophet thing. And instead what he says is, I wish I didn't have to say this to you. I spent a little bit of time thinking about the dream and its interpretation, and I wish it was for your enemies. I wish it was for somebody else. I just want us to stop and think about the kind of compassion that it takes to have that kind of an attitude towards someone who is definitely worthy of correction, right? It isn't that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't deserve the punishment. It isn't that he hasn't earned the punishment. So what's going on in the heart of Daniel? I, I can tell you what's going on. You, Daniel is in Babylon as a punishment. Daniel knows what it feels like to be punished by God. Daniel knows what it feels like to be broken, to be a sinner, to be worthy of the wrath of God and to have felt it firsthand. And so what we're seeing on display, this compassion, I believe, 
is an outworking of a humble solidarity with this fellow man in recognizing that everybody is busted. And we miss this sometimes, right? It's easy to feel like the people who answer the Bible trivia questions right are the good guys, and anybody who can't answer the Bible trivia right are the bad guys, right? Or maybe, and maybe to feel like everybody who, uh, everybody who votes like you do is a good guy, and everybody who votes the other way is a bad guy, or everybody who reads the, you know, the Bible version that you like is a good guy, and the ones who don't are bad guys. Or, there's a hundred million ways to divide it, and we're better at that in America right now than we've ever been grouping up in our little tribes and demonizing everybody who's not inside our circle. And it's important for us to remember that the, that the other human beings on this planet who are made in the image of God, no matter what color their skin, no matter what language they speak, no matter where they come from, how much money they make, those people are all children of God who are just as busted as we are. And so there is a humble solidarity with our fellow man that should, that should inform all of our interactions with people. Our prophetic engagement should be informed by a recognition that everyone I meet is just as broken as me. I think sometimes we start to see other people, other human beings, as our enemies. Can I tell you, there's no, there's no human beings on this planet that are your enemies. They might be the captive of your enemy, but they aren't your enemy. And, and that reframes your approach to every person you meet, right? Because if you hurt somebody you've been taken captive, you wouldn't hate the captive. You'd hate the captor. See the difference? There are people in this world who've been taken captive by, by false worldviews. There are people in this world who've been taken captive by our enemy, whose minds have been clouded to the truth. And they're just people who need to be set free and redeemed, just like me and just like you. They are us. Daniel is able, <laughs> instead of gloating over the pronouncement of judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar, to say, I, I wish I could say this to somebody else. There is a compassion, a heart that hurts for and with the suffering is what I'm calling us to, right? A heart that hurts for and with the suffering. You think about Jonah's response, right? You probably know that. Even just from, like, colloquially, you might know the story of Jonah. But when God comes to Jonah and says, hey, I want you to go and I want you to tell those Ninevites that if they don't clean up their act, I'm going to destroy the whole place. And Jonah's like, I don't see what the problem is, right? What's the problem? Like, they're, they're wicked and you're telling me you're going to destroy the whole place? Yeah, do that. Destroy it. Great. Those people are our enemies. Like I'd be ha I'm getting on a boat to go the other way. I'm not going to preach the gospel to a bunch of people that you're going to redeem because I don't want them redeemed. And we can read that story in Jonah and we can go, naughty Jonah, right? Selfish Jonah. Uh, man, I, I see that kind of attitude all over right now. All over the place with people who are followers of Jesus that are like, I can't wait for God to give them what's coming. That's, that's a Jonah mindset at the beginning of the story. That is not a Jonah, well, it's a little bit of a Jonah mindset at the end of the story, to be honest, right? He doesn't get a lot better than that. But it ain't a Daniel mindset. And so when you and I, this week, when we start to envision how can we be people of influence in a culture that doesn't care about our God, I would love to point you back to the fact that at, in humble solidarity with the brokenness of others, we can be compassionate, even if they deserve the punishment that's coming because remember, we also deserve the punishment, right? We may not be receiving it by the, by the shed blood of Christ, but we deserve it, right? So we come to, to relationships with others with compassion, with care. I think also of the story of the ungrateful servant. Matthew chapter 18, this is Jesus. Matthew 18, 21, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Like, what's it going to take here? How often do I have to do this? Jesus said to him, 
I did not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. You probably don't know the currency of the day, but that's far, far less than the debt that had just been forgiven. A fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I mean, I don't know how you interpret that any other way. He's saying, have the compassion of Daniel, not the heart of Jonah, right? Care for your brother. Care for your brother. He's broken. So are you. He, he deserves it. So do you, right? And if not for the grace of God, we would all be condemned. So first, back to Daniel. I know I got a, a little sidetrack. I do that, right? Daniel chapter 4, the first thing, I, I love it in 19. Daniel 4, 19, he says, O king, let not, uh, he says, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. There's compassion there. Then we'll go on. The next thing I want you to see is clarity. He says, the tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a, a decree of the Most High which has come upon my lord the king that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. This is a hard message, admittedly a hard message. It's a hard message to say to people what it says in Genesis 3, which is that to those who do not believe in the name of the Son of the Lord, they remain condemned, right? A, a message of being separated from God because of sin is not a message that, that people are excited to hear. Talking about spiritual death and talking about separation from God and talking about hell, these are topics that people would just as soon dance around, but we don't do anybody any favors by watering that down or walking away. So I, I want to lead, and Daniel leads with compassion. But I don't want that sense of compassion to lead us to a place where we go, well, it's compassionate not to tell the whole story because that isn't true. It's actually unloving to not be clear, right? And so Daniel says, I love you. I, well, he doesn't say I love you, but he says, I wish this was for your, for your enemies. And then he says the bottom line is things are about to get real bad. Your kingdom's going to be stripped from you and you're going to be like a wild animal and you're going to be living in the field and it's going to be out there for everybody to see and that's going to stay like that until such time as you realize 
that there is a tree under which the whole earth finds shade and it isn't you, right? It's a difficult message to, to declare, but he doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't water it down because that doesn't do anybody any favors. We, we recognize that God's word is his gift even when it's hard, right? That God's word is his gift even when it's hard. I've, I've used this word picture before, this illustration, I guess. But imagine out here at the Ponderosa Pool, we got these lifeguards and, uh, and they're great. They're great at what we do and we know why they're there, right? We know the lifeguards and what they do. But can you imagine if you were, you know, sitting at the picnic tables by the volleyball court and all of a sudden you heard the whistle start to blow and you look over at the Ponderosa Pool and sure enough, we got a camper floating, you know, face down in the pool. Terrifying, terrifying moment. So they start to blow the whistles. They clear the pool. The lifeguards dive in. They grab that body as best they can, and they bring them carefully over to the side of the pool. They flip them up onto the, onto the edge, and then the, the lifeguard who, who pulled them out, she leans over, and she just starts to like make out with them for all he's worth, right? Just the most romantic kiss you've ever seen on the side of a pool, right? You would be appalled by that, probably, yeah? <laughs> It'd be like, what in the world is going on, right? Because in that moment, it doesn't matter how beautiful the kiss is. It doesn't matter how romantic the moment seems. It doesn't matter that the intentions of, of the lifeguard are to convey love and compassion and affection, right? What that person needs in that moment is air in their lungs and nothing else will save them. And so anything short of air in their lungs is actually unkind, even though kissing is really nice. And in another circumstance, the person in the pool might be really happy to be kissed by the lifeguard. But in that particular situation, what they need is oxygen. And I think sometimes we, we walk into situations and circumstances with people and we feel nervous about the good gift of God's word because we know it's hard for people to hear. It's hard to be told by your three-year-old that you should have turned down the music, right? How much harder is it to be told by God's word that because of our sin, we're separated from God and set to be separated from him for eternity? That's not a message anybody's looking forward to hearing. And yet it is, it is the message of the scripture. So Daniel, as a sign of affection, is clear, right? He's clear with Nebuchadnezzar. That Nebuchadnezzar is not the tree protecting the animals. He becomes an animal, ultimately, to learn his proper place under the real tree, right? So this punishment is fitting because what, what Nebuchadnezzar was doing was envisioning himself as the tree and everyone else under him. And God says, no, 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 I'm the tree. You're one of the animals. And to prove it, you're going to be like a beast of the field for seven seasons, right? It's a very fitting punishment, but it's a, but it's a shameful and humiliating punishment for Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel doesn't pull any punches. So we see compassion. We see clarity. And then this is really interesting, too. Even if you've studied this before, maybe you haven't noticed this last part. Maybe you have. But I kind of love what happens next. He's, he's delivered this message as clear as he can. Verse 26 now. It says, As it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Right? So that this is going to happen until you realize you're not the tree, but God is. And then he says this in 27. It's interesting. He says, therefore, O my king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. What? I mean, God has already said, we're going to strip the branches. We're going to tear all the leaves. We're going to chop down the tree. We're going to cap it with bronze. Like, this guy's going down for seven seasons. And for what it's worth, if you read to the end of the chapter... That is exactly what happens. So what God said would happen is exactly what happens. It's very interesting to me that Daniel, in exile, to a king who, who enslaved him, 
takes a moment at the end. So he's, he's already said, I wish this wasn't for you. I wish it was for your enemies. Then he follows by going, here's, here's with clarity what God's about to do. But he doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't drop the mic and walk out. He finishes by saying, I know who God is, and I know what God has said, but none of us know what God will do. If you were here, uh, if you were here last night when we looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the crux of their speech in, in Daniel chapter 3 is, our God is able to deliver us, and he has certainly told us not to worship false idols, and so we're not bowing down, and he, he can deliver us, but we don't know what he'll do. We're, we're as interested to see how this story ends as you are, but we ain't bowing to your statue. What they affirmed last night and what Daniel is doing here, it's the same principle. What he's saying is, I know who God is, I know what God has said, and I am also certain in my uncertainty of what he will do. Because he's God and I'm not. Because his ways are beyond mine. Because he has a plan sometimes that's bigger and better than anything I can envision and imagine. So what's interesting here is that in light of the fact that God has already said to Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to be punished for your pride, here's how long it's going to go. At the end, Daniel goes, uh, you care if I give you some advice? What is that? Well, it's just, it's just friendly counsel, right? And I don't think we do this a lot of times. Again, I think a lot of times as ambassadors living in 2022, I think we err on uh, maybe one of the first two, right? We're either like way compassionate with no clarity or we're super clear and unkind with no compassion. I don't know that we lean into this third category. By the way, we find those first two, we find balance in those, grace and truth, right? And then this third one is, if I got people in my circle and they don't know Jesus, well, I'm at least going to try and give them some advice on what they were built to do and what their life was made for and why God created them and that he wants to know them and that there's a different way to live, right? I think some, sometimes, and it's, it does sort of depend, too, on where you sit on like the, oh, you know, on the predestination versus free will thing or whatever. You kind of go, I don't, need to, I don't need to lean into giving people advice because they're going to do what they're going to do as was ordained by God. Or, you know, there, there's, a, there's a spectrum that that can, thing can sit on. I just love the beauty of caring enough about my fellow man to go, look, can I just give you some advice? Maybe you should be kind. Maybe you should curb your pride. Maybe you should care and give mercy. Listen, this is the advice he gives him. He says, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps, if you're a note-taking kind of person, I would, uh, you know, of course, underline, circle, highlight that word perhaps. I love his uncertainty. I think that's so beautiful and honest. He doesn't know what God's going to do. God has said what he said, but he doesn't know that God might be merciful, that God might have given the dream for the sake of catalyzing Nebuchadnezzar into a different way of life. Why? Because Daniel's just a human being like you and me. And while we know who God is and we know what God has said, we cannot perfectly predict what God will do. And I love, I just like living in that tension of knowing that God might surprise us, that he might do something we didn't anticipate. He might do it different than he did last week or last month. He might do it different than he did with our last pastor or our last neighbor or, you know, whatever, with our uncle. It, he, he is God and he can do it the way he wants. And so for us as his ambassadors to live in the tension of that and to lean into the lives of our neighbors and go, hey, can I, can I give you a little bit of advice? Maybe you should think about being more kind. Maybe you should stop stealing money from the place you work. Maybe you should think about not having an affair anymore. Break off that relationship with this other person. You were built for something better than this. Maybe think about using your life to not glorify money or sex or power. Maybe think about using your life to glorify God. That's what you're built for. And perhaps maybe things will turn around in your life. Who knows what God will do, right? I love being an ambassador of the perhaps of God's 
God's pleasure, right? I don't know what God's pleasure is in every circumstance, and I love just being able to step into circumstances and go, maybe if you lived in a way that aligned with, with God's glory and his purpose for you, maybe you'd find some peace, right? Daniel says, take my counsel if you will. I also want to point out, for what it's worth, that while he's affirming who God is and what God has said and that he doesn't know what God will do, he is also calling, this is a little bit complicated, but I think you'll, you'll see what I'm saying here. He is also calling Nebuchadnezzar to do something that he himself is doing at the same time. Does that make sense? So listen, check this. When he says, uh, when he says, show mercy to the oppressed, that isn't just something he's asking somebody else to do. He literally, in the midst of inviting Nebuchadnezzar to show mercy to the oppressed, is himself showing mercy to the oppressed. No, and the reason I highlight that and bring it out is that a lot of times, again, we're, um, we're placing uh, demands upon other people, but our life uh, contradicts the things and the expectations we're placing on others. So it's vital in our lives. If you want to have a prophetic if you want to have prophetic engagement in the lives of your neighbors, like you, you want to be able to speak truth to them or, or give them counsel, that has to be built on a foundation of demonstrable faith. If there's no demonstrable faith in your life, and by that I mean like a life lived in accordance with God's word and the heart and spirit of Christ, if you're not living a life of demonstrable faith, the moment that you look at your neighbor and say, hey, don't, don't cheat on your wife or don't cheat on your taxes or quit parking in my yard or whatever, whatever kind of counsel you're trying to give them, if you're not living on a ground of, of demonstrable faith, well, they will immediately discount the counsel that you've given them. But what Daniel is doing is showing compassion and mercy to someone who is oppressed, and at the very same time he's showing mercy to someone who's oppressed, he's inviting that person to show mercy to the oppressed. I will say that pitch wins every time, right? What he could have said, maybe be to other people the way I'm being to you, right? And I don't know necessarily we have to give that speech to our neighbors, but it would be cool to live that kind of life so that when we're encouraging our neighbors to live a different way, they're able to look at our life and see that we believe what we're saying. Our hope in the end of this. So what we see in Daniel's speech is compassion and clarity and counsel. And, uh, and then at the end, everything comes to pass. I'll let you read this on your own time for the sake of our time tonight. But it all, it all comes to pass exactly as it says. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar 28. At the end of 12 months, he basically loses his mind and he goes out and lives in the field and different commentators have different opinions for exactly what this is and how it happened and what it looks like but he ends up living among the the animals for a while it says there in verse 33 his body was wet with the dew and his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws gross but here's what i want you to see at the end 34 at the end of the days i nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Right? Nebuchadnezzar even comes to understand that, that like God is going to do what God's going to do because he's God. And Nebuchadnezzar isn't, right? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me. And I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble, right? 
Nebuchadnezzar thought to himself, I need to write this down for all the peoples of the earth to understand what God has done for me. And what God has done for him at a surface level is punish him for his pride. But at a deeper level is to remind him of who he is, right? My hope in ambassadorship. I live in Fullerton. I'm interacting with people all the time. Yeah, I interact with a lot of church people, but I'm, I am intentionally engaged in my neighborhood, right? Um, really quick story. One of, the, one of the most, I haven't done this in, in Fullerton because I haven't had time, but when I was living in Long Beach, I got involved in uh, refereeing youth soccer, right? Um, uh, they needed refs at AYSO at Hartwell Park, and, and I was looking for some exercise, honestly, and um, so I started refing soccer, and I had no idea when I signed up what a beautiful opportunity that would be to meet all the coaches, all the players, all the other refs, so many of my neighbors. I also got great exercise because I was refing like U12 all the way up to like U20 games, and when you're refing like a U16 game, you'll run like six miles in a game. So it was great exercise, but but more important than that, the, the thing with refing soccer is, and you might not know this, but the... The rules of the game um, are in, in they, they are under the jurisdiction of the center ref, right? In fact, with soccer, they don't even have an official clock. The official clock for a soccer game is, is on the center ref's wrist. So, so there's all this discretion. There's all this discernment. As a, as a ref, what you're doing in real time with your neighbors and their kids is you're putting on display grace and truth, Right? You're going, yeah, here's what happened, but here's, here's the actual movement of the ball. You have the opportunity to, to give something called advantage. You ever see a referee put his hands up like this? What he's saying is, I know there was a foul there, but I'm going to let it play on because there was no advantage gained. Well, that's not the kind of thing they can write into the rule book. They can write that principle in the rule book, but what happens is that the, the referee has to be discerning to demonstrate grace and truth, and it was, it was really fun because what I was able to do in that season of time, not only lose a little bit of weight, but I was also able, over time what happened is I would have families from the neighborhood that would come and go, we love it when you ref our games. There's, there's something different about you. Like you just, you seem like you're having fun. You don't seem like you're ever stressed out. I'm like, I'm plenty stressed. But they were like, it feels even and fair. And, and, and you're, you can be really firm sometimes. But it feels like even in those times when you're firm, then in the next moment you're encouraging the students that you just called a foul on. There's such, there's such this really cool balance. Like, what's the deal with you? And I had the ability to say over and over in the four or five years that I did that, over and over to say to people, like, I'm trying to ref this game the way that Jesus refs the world, right? And they were like, oh, great, you're a Christian, you know, or whatever, right? And there's like this kind of glaze that goes over. But again and again, later, not immediately, but later, I would have families come back to me and say, we just found out our daughter has to have eye surgery. Would you, would you do your prayer for her? You know, right? And I, they were probably wanting me to do like a ceremony with smoke or something. But it was fun to pray with families and to bless them and to, and to be a physical representation of compassion and clarity and counsel on a soccer field that then translated into people's lives. They, they are hungry for this. They are hungry for the balance that comes in this, just like Nebuchadnezzar responded well to it. And the hope for us, the hope for us is that if as ambassadors we're leaning into the lives of our neighbors with compassion and clarity and counsel, that long-term what we see is the same response that Nebuchadnezzar has here. That there is a point in their life where they're able to stop and go, I got to talk about the things that, that God has done for me. I didn't know who he was. In fact, I thought I was the center of the universe. But God was good to me, and he, he came to show me who he is. Don't you want to be a part of that? I certainly want to be a part of that. And we live in a world that desperately needs ambassadors like this.
to put Jesus on display, right? I, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. There, there is a balance in Daniel of grace and truth. And it, it isn't accidental in my mind that when John describes Jesus in John chapter 1, the incarnate word, he says, in him was grace and truth. Realize, right? That is what we see there, this balance of compassion and clarity. So uh, as we look at Daniel 4, my encouragement to you is to try and find harmony in these things as well as you interact with the people you know. Thanks for listening. Let me pray for us and we'll call it a night. God, thank you for being a God of compassion and clarity and counsel. Thank you for loving us, loving us enough to discipline us as your daughters and your sons. Would you help us to never begrudge that pruning, but to always um, endure it as sons who are being loved or daughters who are being loved by you? And God, in our interaction with other people, will you give us a humble solidarity with our fellow man? Will you remind us again and again that even the people that we know who deserve punishment are just like us? We also deserve punishment, and it is only by the grace of God, the shed blood of Christ, that we have been redeemed and it is through the shed blood of Christ and by the grace of God that our neighbors and friends and coworkers and aunts and uncles can be redeemed as well. Will you help us to come um, into interactions with other people as your ambassadors with joy in bringing the message of reconciliation that you're not counting men's sins against them, but you're reconciling the world to yourself through Christ. Thank you that you allow us to be that messenger, that you allow us to be ambassadors of that message and help us to do so in a way that... Uh, puts you on display, that we would live lives that reveal Christ, that as Christ is revealed to us, Christ would be revealed in us, and Christ would be revealed by us. We pray that in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.